Book Three, Part Eleven of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Eleven, December Seventh, eighteen sixty-two to January Fourth, eighteen sixty-three. Sunday, 7th December. I have had a shock. While writing alone here, almost all have gone to church, I heard a step ascending the stair. What, I asked, if it should be Will? Then I blamed myself for supposing such a thing possible. Slowly it came nearer and nearer. I raised my head and was greeted with a ghastly smile. I held out my hand. Will! Sarah, misery discards ceremony. He stood before me the most woebegone, heartbroken man I ever saw. With a forced laugh, he said, Where is my bride? Pshaw, I know she has gone to Clinton. I have come to talk to you. Wasn't it a merry wedding? The hollow laugh rang again. I tried to jest, but failed. Sit down and let me talk to you, I said. He was in a wayward humor, cut to the heart, ready to submit to a touch of silk or to resist a grasp of iron. This was the man I had to deal with and get from him something he clung to as to not his life, but Miriam. And I know so little how to act in such a case, know so little about dealing gently with wild natures. He alarmed me at first, his forced laugh ceased. He said that he meant to keep that license always. It was a joke on him yesterday, but with that in his possession the tables would be turned on her. He would show it to her occasionally. It should keep her from marrying anyone else. I said that it would be demanded, though. He must deliver it. The very devil shot in his eye as he exclaimed fiercely, If anyone dares demand it, I'll die before giving it up. If God Almighty came, I'd say no. I'll die with it first. Oh, merciful father, I thought, what misery is to come of this jest? He must relinquish it. Gibbs will force him into it or die in the attempt. George would come from Virginia. Jimmy would cross the seas and I was alone in here to deal with such a spirit. I commenced gently. Would he do Miriam such a wrong? It was no wrong, he said. Let him follow his own will. You profess to love her, I asked. Profess? Great God, how can you? I adore her. I tell you that in spite of all this, I love her not more, that is impossible, but as much as ever. Look at my face and ask that burst from him with the wildest impulse. Very well, this girl you love, then, you mean to make miserable. You stand forever between her and her happiness because you love her. Is this love? He was sullenly silent. I went on, not only her happiness, but her honor is concerned. You who love her so, do her this foul injury. Would it affect her reputation, he asked? Ask yourself, is it quite right that you should hold in your hands the evidence that she is Mrs. Carter when you know she is not and never will be? Is it quite honorable? 
"'In God's name would it injure Miriam? "'I'd rather die than grieve her.' "'My iron was melted, but too hot to handle. "'I put it on one side, satisfied that I and I only "'had saved Miriam from injury and three brothers from bloodshed "'by using his insane love as a lever. "'It does not look as hard here as it was in reality, "'but it was of the hardest struggles I ever had. "'Indeed, it was desperate. "'I had touched the right key.' and, satisfied of success, turned the subject to let him believe he was following his own suggestions. When I told him he must free Miriam from all blame, that I had encouraged the jest against her repeated remonstrances, and was alone to blame, he generously took it on himself. I was so crazy about her, he said, that I would have done it anyhow. I would have run any risk for the faintest chance of obtaining her, and much more to the same purpose, that, though very generous in him, did not satisfy my conscience. But he surprised me by saying that he was satisfied that if I had been in my room and he had walked into the parlor with the license, she would have married him. What infatuation! He says, though, that I only prevented it, that my influence by my mere presence is stronger than his words. I don't say that it is so, but if I helped save her, thank heaven. It is impossible to say one half that passed, but he showed me his determination to act just as he has heretofore, and take it all as a joke, that no blame might be attached to her. "'Besides, I'd rather die than not see her. "'I laugh, but you don't know what I suffer. "'Poor fellow, I saw it in his swimming eyes. "'At last he got up to go before they returned from church. "'Beg her to meet me as she always has. "'I told Mrs. Worley that she must treat her just the same "'because I love her so. "'And... Say I go to Clinton to-morrow to have that record effaced and deliver up the license. I would not grieve her. Indeed, I love her too well. His voice trembled as well as his lips. He took my hand, saying, You are hard on me. I could make her happy, I know, because I worship her so. I have been crazy about her for three years. You can't call it a mere fancy. Why are you against me? but God bless you. Good-bye. And he was gone. Why? Oh, Will, because I love my sister too much to see her miserable merely to make you happy. Friday, 12th December. My cripple friend that I mentioned so far back continues to send me the most affecting messages. He is really wretched about me, never was more distressed, thinks of nothing else, and so on through the whole list. To cap the climax, he sends me word that he can now walk on crutches, and the first time he can venture in a buggy means to call on me. Que le ciel m'en préserve! What could we talk about? "'Hisen and hern several misfortunes? "'That's too bad. "'Everyone teases me unmercifully about my new conquest. "'I can't help but be amused, "'and yet beware, young girls, of expressing sympathy, "'even for soldiers. "'There is no knowing what effect it may produce.' "'Sunday, December 14th. 
Yesterday evening, some time before sunset, Mr. Enders was announced, to our great surprise, as we knew he had been in Clinton all the week, having been transferred there instead of to Jackson, as he threatened. He was the most miserable, unhappy creature one could possibly imagine, even too melancholy for me to laugh at him, which expresses the last degree of wretchedness." To all our questions he had but one answer, that he had had the most dreadful attack of blues ever since he was here Sunday, that he had waited every evening at the cars expecting us, and at last, seeing that we had no intention of coming, he could no longer stand the temptation, so got permission to come down for a day to Port Hudson so he could come out to see us. Before we could fairly get him cheerful, Will Carter and Ned Badger, who returned only this week from Kentucky, entered. Will was in a bad humor and wanted to vent it on us, so after waiting some time he proposed that the two young men should go with him, pocketing at the same moment the cards which had won Miriam, and saying they would have a nice game together, and just the rarest old whiskey. He looked around to see the effect produced. We girls did not move, but Mr. Enders said he must really return immediately to Port Hudson and start for Clinton from there in the night. Will thought it would be such a triumph over us to carry him off that he insisted. They'd have a fine time, cure the blues, etc. Ned was more than willing, and at last Mr. Enders said— well, he felt just so desperate that he did not care what he did. He believed he would go. I saw he was in a reckless humor, and that Will knew it, too, and I promised to make at least an effort to save him. Miriam spoke to him apart, but he said that he had promised now he must go. Will ran down triumphant to mount his horse, calling him to follow. All ran out to see him off when Frank came back to tell me good-bye. I seized the opportunity, and didn't I plead? I told him I would not ask him to stay here, though he knew we would be happy to have him stay, and begged him to go back to the camp and leave Will alone. I suggested other resources, talked of his mother, whom he idolizes, pleaded like a grandmother, and just as I wound up, came Will's voice from below. Why the devil don't you come, Enders? Hurry! He moved a step, looked at me. I dropped my head without a word. Here I must confess to the most consummate piece of acting. I am sorry, but as long as it saved him from doing what I knew he would have cause to regret, I am not ashamed of having tried it. Will called impatiently again as he stood hesitating before me. I did not say stay, I just gave the faintest sigh imaginable. He went down and told Will he would not go. Of course Will went off in a rage with us. Friday, December 26, 1862. Monday, Dr. Woods and Mr. Van Ingen stopped, just from their regiment in Kentucky and on their way home, and I begged so hard to see the doctor, and promised so faithfully to retire if I suffered too much, that Mrs. Badger yielded like an angel, and I carried my point. The doctor! We looked in vain at each other— 
I, for my dandy friend in irreproachable broadcloth, immaculate shirt-bosoms, and perfect boots, he for the brusque impulsive girl who in ordinary circumstances would have run dancing into the parlour, would have given him half-glad, half-indifferent greeting, and then found either occasion to laugh at him, or would have turned elsewhere for amusement. We looked, I say, in vain. Before me stood my pattern of neatness in a rough uniform of brown homespun, a dark flannel shirt replaced the snowy cambric one, and there was neither cravat nor collar to mark the boundary line between his dark face and the still darker material. And the dear little boots, oh ye gods and little fishes, they were clumsy and mud-spattered. If my mouth twitched with laughter as I silently commented, the doctors did not. I, who always danced on my way, came in lying back on my pillows and wheeled in by a servant. The doctor's sympathy was really touching, and poor consolation he gave when he heard the story. You will recover to a certain extent, but will feel it more or less all your life. I am the ruin of all these puns. The gentlemen will hate me. I must learn to ignore their conundrums until they answer them themselves, and to wait patiently for the pun instead of catching it and laughing before it is half spoken. Why can't I do as the others do? There was Mr. Van Ingen with his constant stream of them that I anticipated several times. He said to me, "'If I were asked what town in Louisiana I would rather be in this evening, what would my answer be?' I should have looked perfectly innocent and politely inquisitive, but I did neither. I saw the answer instantly, and laughed. "'Ah, you have guessed. I can see it in your eyes,' he said. Of course I had, but I told him I was afraid to say it, for fear he might think I was flattering myself. Then we both laughed. The place he referred to was Bayou Sarah.' Yesterday, being a beautiful day, I was carried down in honour of Christmas to meet Captain Fenner and Mr. Duggan, who were to dine with us. The cars had brought Miriam a beautiful little set of collars and cuffs from Delhi, and the oddest, sweetest little set for me from Morgan for our Christmas gift. It is all Lily. We had an exquisite Christmas gift the night before, a magnificent serenade, a compliment from Colonel Bro. It very singularly happened that Miriam, Anna, and Ned Badger were sitting up in the parlour, watching alone for Christmas, when the band burst forth at the steps and startled them into a stampede upstairs. But Gibbs, who came with the serenaders, caught them and brought them back into the parlour, where there were only eight gentlemen, and in this novel unheard-of style only these two girls, with Gibbs to play propriety, entertained all these people at midnight while the band played without. I commenced writing to-day expressly to speak of our pleasant Christmas, yet it seems as though I would write about anything except that, since I have not come to it yet. Perhaps it is because I feel I could not do it justice. At least I can say who was there. At sunset came Captain Bradford and Mr. Conn, the first stalking in with all the assurance which a handsome face and fine person can lend, 
the second following with all the timidity of a first appearance. Again, after a long pause, the door swung open, and enter Mr. Halsey, who bows and takes the seat on the other side of me, and Mr. Bradford, of Colonel Allen memory, once more returned to his regiment, who laughs, shakes hands all around, and looks as happy as a schoolboy just come home for the holidays, who has never-ending visions of plum-cakes, puddings, and other sweet things." While all goes on merrily, another rap comes, and enters Santa Claus, dressed in the old uniform of the Mexican War, with a tremendous cocked hat and a preposterous beard of false hair, which effectually conceal the face, and but for the mass of tangled short curls, no one could guess that the individual was Bud. It was a device of the general's which took us all by surprise. Santa Claus passes slowly around the circle, and pausing before each lady draws from his basket a cake which he presents with a bow, while to each gentleman he presents a wine-glass replenished from a most suspicious-looking black bottle which also reposes there. Leaving us all wonder and laughter, Santa Claus retires with a basket much lighter than it had been at his entrance. Then follow refreshments, and more and more talk and laughter, until the clock strikes twelve, when all these ghosts bid a hearty good-night and retire. January 1st, Thursday, 1863 1863? Why, I have hardly become accustomed to writing sixty-two yet. Where has this year gone? With all its troubles and anxieties, it is the shortest I ever spent. Sixty-one and sixty-two together would hardly seem three hundred and sixty-five days to me. Well, let time fly. Every hour brings us nearer our freedom, and we are two years nearer peace now than we were when South Carolina seceded. That is one consolation." I learn, to my unspeakable grief, that the State House is burned down. Sunday, January 4th. One just from Baton Rouge tells us that my presentiment about our house is verified. The Yankees do inhabit it, a Yankee colonel and his wife. They say they look strangely at home on our front gallery, pacing up and down, and a stranger and a Yankee occupies our father's place at the table where he presided for thirty-one years, and the old lamp that lighted up so many eager laughing faces around the dear old table night after night, that with its great beaming eye watched us one by one as we grew up and left our home, that witnessed every parting and every meeting, by which we sang, read, talked, danced, and made merry, the lamp that Hal asked for as soon as he beheld the glittering chandeliers of the new innovation, gas, the lamp that all agreed should go to me among other treasures, and be cased in glass to commemorate the old days, our old lamp has passed into the hands of strangers who neither know nor care for its history. And mother's bed, which, with the table and father's little ebony stand, alone remained uninjured, belongs now to a Yankee woman. 
father prized his ebony table he said he meant to have a gold plate placed in its centre with an inscription and i meant to have it done myself when he died so soon after a yankee now sips his tea over it just where some bow or beauty of the days of charles the second may have rested a laced sleeve or dimpled arm give the devil his due bless the yankees for one thing they say they tried hard to save our state house end of book three part eleven end of book three